0: We're the number one comedy podcast on Podbean at the moment. Get out of here! He's yeah. right off. I wish I'd had the opportunity, this is going to make the cut of the podcast, I wish I'd had the opportunity to mention this when you weren't eating rice pudding. Is <laughs> 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 that a shit ton more professional
1: if I did. <laughs>
0: yeah, we are the number one comedy podcast on Podbean. I don't know if that reflects well on us or very badly on the quality of content on Podbean, but
2: hello! Bounding clearly isn't very high, is it? Well, blow me down. More so than the Joe Rogan experience.
0: I don't think that's true.
2: <laughs> we're higher up on the list, though.
0: I'm going to put it out there I don't think that we're a more popular podcast than Joe Rogan.
2: My dad wrote a porno, we're higher than that one.
0: I don't think we
2: are. <laughs> this is amazing. We're getting some excellent feedback, though. We're getting some lovely feedback from people, which is delightful.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tank Takahashi. So, Tank Takahashi said, "I love this podcast. It feels like you're with your mates at the pub and discussing history, but brilliant, as opposed to usually discussing history at the pub with your mates, which is shit." <laughs> which is <laughs> shit. <laughs> Just down at the pub with my mates Simon Sharma and Dan Snow, and they will not fucking shut up, Tom. Oh, it's so you fucking
2: boring, aren't they?
0: If I have to hear about the Reformation one more bloody time. <laughs> Well, if that's not put you off, hello and welcome to Podbean's top ranked comedy podcast. Unbelievably,
2: not comedians. And
0: are (laughs) bordering (laughs) on the limits of being historians. Uh, Welcome to That Was Genius, the history comedy podcast in which two guys on different sides of the world. Discuss topics on a theme each week. The topic is decided the week in advance, but everything else is a surprise. You know the drill by now, unless you're one of our new listeners. In which case, hello. Hello. What is the topic this week, Tom? Badasses. Historical badasses. Good choice. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed it's taken us this long to get round to this one.
2: (laughs) What was particularly good is last week when we discussed the fact that we could go for bad badasses or good badasses, i.e., successful badasses or useless badasses. Yes. That opened things up for me did it it really did i've got fantastic example very very good example of someone who is a bad badass a hero to zero an oj simpson <laughs> a lance armstrong Ooh. that's what i've got oh wow yeah. that bad badass I've got a Bill Cosby. I've got a real hero to zero. You're actually doing Bill Cosby? No, no, no not currently, no. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, I don't quite know where I am. Oh, I'm looking at my drink. Oh. Has he spiked your rice pudding? <laughs> it's what I was going for. <laughs> uh, no, yes, I'm doing, I'm doing a hero to zero. Fantastic. Well, I've got. Oh, I don't know what.
0: I think I'd say a chaotic good. Okay. And a chaotic neutral today. I'm actually. I've cheated, Tom. I'm going to. I'm letting this out of the bag now. I couldn't decide which of two to do,
2: so I'm doing both. That's fine. <laughs> so I've got two separate ones today. That's all right. Would you like to f- podcast Spit Roast, where you go first, I go second, you go third? We c- we can do that, yeah. Ah, okay. That'd be a bit new, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be a bit are radical. You, are you
0: happy to be historically Spit Roasted by me? Hmm. <laughs> Henry VIII at the back, <laughs> Martin Luther King at the front. <laughs>
2: it's either that or have you toss something badass related. <laughs> and I'm not sure... Oh, I've already been through that with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we could toss something anyway, just as a ceremonial thing
0: I don't have anything badass to toss, I don't think I'm generally a, I'm generally a good and fairly meek man
2: <laughs> What have I got that's
0: badass?
2: Staplers, they
0: could be bad, couldn't they? Oh yeah, there's a scene in The Sopranos where Tony Soprano staples something to a guy's chest
2: Okay, excellent, well in that case staples are very bad Go on then I'll have the bottom of the stapler. Okay, what happens if it lands on the side, which is the most likely outcome, one of the sides?
0: Then chaos will
2: reign. You can have the bottom and pointing to the left. (laughs) Okay, fine. I'll have top and pointing to the right, which means I've now got to spin it.
0: I'll be honest, I'm struggling to get emotionally invested in the outcome of a stapler toss, but I'll try my hardest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready? Come on! Come on, bottom. Come on, left. (laughs) I'm going to have to put something on my desk because I've got a nice um, leather inlay in my desk that I don't want to damage. Oh, I'm glad that you followed the word leather with the word inlay. (laughs) It's a nice leather desk. (laughs) Currently bent over with my hands tied behind my back. Whilst Bruce Willis (laughs) rummages around upstairs for a weapon. Right. You go first. Do do I? There's a surprise since that was (laughs) pre-organised.
0: It's almost (laughs) like this is rigged. (laughs) Okay, Tom, well... I've done a lot of 20th Century recently, and I apologise, I will go older next week, I promise, but both of my stories today are from the 20th Century, but they're both really, really good.
2: They're not O.J. Simpson and Bill Cosby, are they? No,
0: they aren't. My first badass, Tom, is Francesca Mann. Have you ever heard of Francesca Mann, Tom? I have not heard of Francesca Mann. Now, Francesca Mann is a woman. I know the surname is confusing, but... Oh, how bizarre Bear with me I know It's a difficult I'm going to struggle this with this Sam We're starting off with a really hard <gasps> Difficult A, a real mind fuck Indeed And uh, and if that wasn't confusing enough Tom
2: There's a chap called Frank <laughs> Woman
0: <laughs> The next line I've got written in my notes I, I think might raise some eyebrows among our audience uh, Francesca Mantom is a badass For being the sexy holocaust victim <laughs> oh, Ooh <laughs> Oh, uh, mm. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Da-da-da-da. Right. Da-da. Yes, the sexy Holocaust victim who didn't go down without a fight, which is absolutely as inappropriate as it sounds,
2: but she's a real badass. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm actually. Right, yes. Carry on.
0: <laughs> Do you know this story?
2: <laughs> no, I don't, but I just. I'm, I'm fearful of making a joke. <laughs>
0: oh, go on. The worst no, thing I'm, not gonna, no, no, just, I'm just
2: not going to try. A, a sexy Holocaust victim. Okay.
0: <laughs> yes. So Francesca Mann was Jewish and a Polish citizen. So she was having a very, very bad time in the 1940s. Unsurprisingly. Oh, yeah, 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 But life hadn't always been that way. When she was growing up, she was one of Poland's most celebrated ballet dancers and had been oh. ranked very highly in competitions throughout Europe as well as performing professionally in nightclubs and theatres around Warsaw. So very, very well-known ballet dancer, very well-respected and known as an absolute stunning beauty she was one of the most beautiful women in warsaw when the war came she found herself imprisoned in the warsaw ghetto along with pretty much all of the uh, polish jewish population of warsaw and when that was destroyed in 1943 following the ghetto uprising she fled along with hundreds of other escaped jewish prisoners into the rest of warsaw where she hid with sympathizers and in lofts and above shops now It's rumoured and believed by some that she was actually captured and released by the SS during the ghetto liquidation and released as a collaborator. At any rate, her name was attached to the Hotel Polsky affair. Who was she collaborating with, Sam? Was it like a fusion dance routine she was working on? Yeah, with the SS, which stands for Slick Steppers. They were a a Nazi jazz trio of tap-dancing (laughs) Waffen-SS.
2: Goose stepped someone goose stepping with tap dad shoes on. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> Dick Von Dyke, Ginger
0: Rogers, Fred von Estelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so good. You know, the only thing less convincing than Dick Van Dyke's English accent is his Deutsche one.
2: <laughs> oh, good oh, that's now a challenge, isn't it, Sam? Can you and I do <laughs> a Dick Van Dyke impression with a German accent? <laughs> Good step back in time. Uh, okay, let me uh, let me try my standard Dick Van Dyke, Mary Poppins. Okay, <laughs>
1: step in time, Mary Poppins. Okay, <clears throat> step in time, Mary Poppins. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded a little bit like Ow. Sean Connery being <laughs> It
0: sounded like Sean Connery with a verse
2: stuffed up his ass. <laughs> Do it again, do it again, do it okay. again Hold on, let me try again I'll do this no, This one as some other Bond <laughs> Famous Bond <clears throat> Mary Poppins, step in time
0: That was Roger Moore, that's very good Now do yeah. Roger Moore as a German
2: <laughs> Well, I will I will, And I will do it as Roger Moore the actor <laughs> Although I, I am German There you go, that was Roger Moore being a German Almost as good as Sean Connery being, being a, a Russian,
0: Russian.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to the
0: USSR. Well, this is a good time I'm
2: I'm glad we found some material out of Holocaust, Sam. I thought we were all going down a dead end for We've still got
0: Dick Van Dyke as an SS office.
1: I have a stalker coming for you! I love to laugh. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Long and Z loud and Z clear. and
2: Brilliant. Comedy gold. Can you imagine that scene when he's with all the other chimney sweeps on the rooftops? Can you imagine that with them all goose-stepping?
0: <laughs> Never has so much comedy gold been got out of the phrase SS collaborator. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Francesca Mann, was, her name was attached to the Hotel Polsky affair. The Hotel Polski was a ground old hotel in Warsaw, which was essentially used as a trap to lure Jewish escapees. And what would happen was neutral countries, largely in South America, had been smuggling passports and visas into Poland uh, to try and help people escape, knowing that the Germans were likely to allow people with dual nationality to emigrate rather than be imprisoned or executed. Uh, However, most of these documents were intercepted by the Gestapo before ever reaching their intended individual, who had often already been transported or died of disease or starvation anyway. So, collaborators began to spread rumours that these passports were being held for storage at the Hotel Polski, where corrupt staff were forging them and selling them off black market for incredibly high prices, often the equivalent of a million dollars or more today. Now, despite warnings from the Polish resistance upwards of two and a half thousand Jews bought into this trap and came out of hiding and headed to the hotel where they either oh no. bought passports or stayed, believing further rumours that it was actually being treated as kind of a safe haven for dual nationality Jews and that the Germans basically would leave you alone if you were staying at the hotel. So, the Germans, of course, dutifully turned up with trains to take the holders of these dual passports to Switzerland or France for prisoner swaps or emigration boats. That's what the Jewish guests at the hotel were told, that they were being shipped off to basically be emigrated or exchanged for German prisoners of war.
1: Only joking, we are going to gas you.
0: That is pretty much exactly what happened. And they say Germans don't have a sense of (laughs) humour.
1: I love to laugh!
0: (laughs) So yeah, in fact, they were just taken to concentration or death camps, and the ones who hadn't managed to get hold of passports were just rounded up and shot in a nearby prison. They didn't even bother putting them on the train. So of the 2,500 odd people who fell for the plan, only about 200 actually managed to escape. Those who had Palestinian passports sent to them were actually used in a real prisoner swap, but the rest were were basically sent away. So it's rumoured that as a dancer who was familiar with Polish high society, Francesca Mann was used as a collaborator to spread this story among the wealthy SKPs. Either way, she wasn't spared, and when the hotel guests were rounded up, she found herself on a train she believed was headed for Switzerland, but was actually headed for Auschwitz. When they got to the camp, the guards ordered them to undress for a disinfectant wash, which was obviously being sent into the gas chambers. Which is when man, realizing what was happening, went badass. And this Tom is where she became the sexy Holocaust victim.
2: Even the second... Every time you say that sentence... I know. I get a horrible shiver up the back of my spine. (laughs) It is. Even
0: by the standards of this podcast, it's probably the least appropriate sentence (laughs) I've ever uttered. It's pretty bad. Which is why I'm repeating it. But you'll see why in a second. So this is the point at which she went badass. So rather than just submit to her fate... The 26-year-old dancer decided to do a sexy striptease when she was ordered to undress for the disinfectant wash. Are
2: you serious? Yeah, yeah. This is well documented?
0: Yeah, it's well documented. And actually, one version of this event, a transcript of the event, made the Nuremberg Trials. Oh, really? It's appeared in several books and, and has been used in court as well. So rather than just submit, she decided to do a sexy striptease <laughs> in Auschwitz. Oh. In Auschwitz. Until she was wearing nothing but her high heels... As one of the most beautiful women in Warsaw, this was obviously very distracting to the SS guards. So finally she took off one high heel, and the other, <laughs> at which point, yes, she went full kill bill and stabbed the commanding officer in the eye with a stiletto heel.
1: Wow. Yeah. As he
0: fell backwards, she grabbed his pistol That's and shot staring him. staring at my tits. Hey, Hans, mine eyes are up here.
2: <laughs> that would be that would be a badass line, wouldn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. That would be a badass line. <laughs> Boom, right in the face of the kitten heel. I don't think any of the transcripts have any badass superhero lines written into them. No, aren't they? Hey, history's there for rewriting. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know the thing about Goose Step? It's very bad for your heels.
2: That... <laughs> <laughs> it's very bad for your ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes, she
0: grabbed his gun after stabbing him in the face with a stiletto, shot him twice in the stomach, killing the commanding officer. She then opened fire on another couple of guards, wounding one in the leg and leaving him with a permanent limp and injuring a third. Now, what happens next varies from account to account. But the best version, by which I mean the one that's most fun, is that the other women in the group then joined in the fray, launching themselves with their hands and fists at the remaining SS guards. One officer had his nose bitten off. Nice. Another was scalped. Wow. Which is...
2: Fucking last of the Mohicans?
1: <laughs> what? what the fuck's going on here?
0: Yeah. I don't... I, God knows how. Um, either way, it's going to be fairly brutal.
2: Scalping? Fuck me.
0: Yeah. One officer was scalped before <laughs> reinforcements from the rest of the camp arrived and opened fire with machine guns and grenades, killing the entire group. So it didn't
2: end well. <laughs> but it was a rather heroic last stand. Well, if you're going to go down, you might as well go down in style, hey? Take some with Damn you. Damn right.
0: Yeah. So it's believed that Mann's last act was actually to shoot herself with the stolen pistol as the as the German reinforcements arrived, which is pretty damn
2: badass. It is. It's 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 badass and incredibly sad that someone has to show their tits for their life. Yes.
0: Although I suspect, well, she knew she was going to die. Okay. Yeah. But it was a last stand. A last stand, which you, which either I guess, depending on the way you look at it. Being serious for a second, is either incredibly degrading, yeah. or as a beauty and renowned dancer, a kind of a final act of defiance.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: It depends on, I guess, it depends on how you look at it. But
2: yeah, a badass nonetheless. I'm amazed I haven't heard that before. What a strange story.
0: So there we go, Francesca man, my first of two badass stories today. But don't worry, the second story is, uh, well, it's still sad, but it's also very funny,
2: more so than this one. <laughs>
0: Although I don't think we'll ever, ever reach the heights of SS Collaborator again.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, talking about concentration camps, Sam, as I mentioned, I was going to go down the Hero to Zero route, Mm -hmm. Earl Douglas Haig. Ooh. I think he was famous, wasn't he, for overseeing the first concentration camps during the Boer War. Yes. I may have got that fact wrong, but I think that's true.
0: A great British invention, the concentration camp.
2: Yes, but obviously it's worth pointing out to listeners that a concentration camp is very different to a death camp, isn't it? It is very different to a death camp, yes. (laughs) Still not a particularly nice thing, but yeah, they are different. So I almost discussed Earl Douglas Haig. I sort of researched him a little bit as a, a route to finding another English military officer who was incompetent. Earl Douglas Haig isn't necessarily incompetent. When I actually had a brief look into it, it's interesting how through the 20th century, people's perception of this man has fluctuated wildly. I mean, do you want to outline? Yes, I probably should. Who he was, for anyone who doesn't like Blackadder. (laughs) See, yeah. (laughs) Um, So Earl Douglas Haig was basically one of the main commanders during the First World War, and was notoriously slow at adapting tactics in the wake of developments with um, machine gun fire. And artillery. Yeah, so he didn't really understand the concept
0: of trench warfare as such,
2: did he? He was. it took him a while, and so he was sort of still sending waves of men into machine gun fire, thinking that they were, you know, going to survive and get to the other trench, and then <laughs> yes, spear. Thinking
0: them. that a stiff upper lip and British spirit would get them through bullets. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. 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 Send Forsyth over. He's very good at cricket. He'll bat away some of the old bullets. He's had a great season for Eton. Bat him back at Bosch. I'm sorry to let you know, sir, but Forsyth is is no longer going to be playing next year for Eton because his head's just been blown off. Dreadful (laughs) news.
0: Oh, dear. We can still play at a crease, can't he? He
2: can can still occupy (laughs) Wed end, can't he? We'll get him a runner. (laughs) Joke for the cricketers out there. Um, Anyway... So, yes, yeah, so Earl Douglas and um, immediately after the First World War, he was actually memorialised. There are statues of him in Edinburgh and London. And then there have been periods in the 20th century where he's been seen as an absolute butcher and someone who is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of British soldiers for no good reason. And then there's almost been a return to the idea that actually he wasn't quite so bad. He was just you know, someone who was struggling to adapt to changes in military tactics and he did have military successes. But anyway, I decided not to talk about old Douglas because I think he was very well known and it's also quite a controversial area. There's a lot of subtlety and nuance to how you interpret him.
0: And that's not what we do in this podcast. Nah nah as nah. regular <laughs> listeners
1: will know. <laughs> no we don't bother with that. Go and listen Got to Shama Shama.
2: <laughs> Fuck off and listen to a proper story. Yeah. So Dan Carlin's waiting for you. Instead, I opted for a less well-known British military commander. And last week we mentioned trying to invade Afghanistan isn't particularly a good idea. (laughs) It isn't an easy place to invade. We also discussed the Napoleonic Wars, and I'm going to discuss both of them again today when I talk about the career of Major General William George Keith Elphinstone. Wow. Have you heard of this chap? General... Do his name again. Major General William George Keith Elphinstone.
0: Was he named after all of his potential fathers? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Keith stands out a little bit, doesn't it? Keith does stand out, as does Elphinstone. Three blokes down the pub and a goblin.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Cradling, cradling the Elphinstone from Lord of the Rings. Uh, So, yes, his name is Major General William George Keith Elphinstone. So Elphinstone was a posh Scottish chap born in 1782, joined the British Army in 1804 and served throughout the Napoleonic Wars, becoming a lieutenant colonel in 1813. Towards the end, he became commander of the 33rd 1st Yorkshire Regiment on foot, also known as the Duke of Wellington's regiment, which he led into battle at the Battle of Waterloo. And that was around 500 men. I couldn't quite work out why it was known as the Duke of Wellington Regiment. Uh, Presumably there was a close connection there between the Duke of Wellington and this regiment, but obviously the Duke of Wellington was the commander-in-chief at the Battle of Waterloo, so wouldn't have been hanging around with that regiment. Yes, I think a
0: lot of regiments were named after the people who'd funded them. Okay. So if you paid for a regiment, you got it
2: named after you. There you go. Or you got it named after your territory. Good fact, excellent knowledge. And so the Duke of Wellington was famously the commander of the Anglo-Allied forces at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. He had around 68,000 men, supported by 50,000 Prussians under a separate command. The Anglo-Allied forces and the Prussians narrowly defeated Napoleon's army, thus ending the Napoleonic Wars. And we touched on last week the fact that Napoleon was exiled and then returned from exile, and this was after his return from exile, Uh, he was finally defeated at Waterloo and then he was I got off to St Helena wasn't he anyway as a result of his involvement at the Battle of Waterloo Elphinstone was given numerous awards so he was made a companion of the Bath Sam oh <laughs> this is a hark back to an uh, it, to a older is. episode it <laughs> yep friend of Lord Flannel Washbottom yes So, it's, I, I, what episode is this
0: I think it was like episode 3 or 4 yeah episode 4 the adventures of Sir Flannel
2: Washbottom there you go love week love week worth listening to cracking podcast the companion of the bath was an order of chivalry that was established in 1725 and it was inspired by the earlier order of the bath which we joked about in that episode
0: the companion of the bath just sits with you whilst you blow bubbles and <laughs> does a little bubbly mustache <laughs> it
2: just, scrubs just your makes back the whole experience a little bit less lonely <laughs> and quite a bit more awkward <laughs> Especially when there were a few, quite a few of them. It was a strict <laughs> one in one out policy for this uh, for this organisation, presumably because there are only so many pompous Brits that you can put in a bathtub. Henry, Henry, pass the soap, old boy, will you? Oh, William, you hound! Stop using the flannel on your bottom. I haven't wiped my face yet. <laughs> Mom, do you do scrub my back, will you? Go easy on my dermatitis. <laughs> your majesty <laughs> <Pan into the> <laughs> <bar>. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine them with their sort of grey wigs as well uh, sitting in the bath Georgian wigs
0: powder wigs and a Fabergé ducky <laughs>
2: Oh dear! So this, so those the. He was made a companion of the Bath. There you go. And he was also made a knight of the Dutch Order of William, which is the most prestigious Dutch order of chivalry, which was set up actually in 1815 after Waterloo, and over a thousand people joined that one immediately after the Battle of Waterloo. Huh. And there was also the Russian Order of Saint Anna. I couldn't find out too much more information about those two. But so hey, this is this is the hero phase of the life of Major General William George Keith Elphinstone, a war hero. Part of the victorious British Allied forces at the Battle of Waterloo. All going well. Very well indeed. Alas, fast forward to 1837. Uh-oh. When he's made... Uh, uh-oh. A bad year. <laughs> fast forward to 1837 when he is made a major general and four years later placed in command of a garrison in Kabul, Afghanistan, during the First Anglo-Afghan War.
0: A very long way from the Bath.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very long way from Belgium as well. <laughs> well
0: yes. <laughs> a... Hey Tom, this is a history podcast, not a geography podcast. You keep that kind of knowledge to yourself.
2: <laughs> a bath is kind of like a Waterloo, isn't it? If you're incontinent. <laughs> I,
0: okay, I suppose about a, ba- a bath is
2: definitely an upgrade from a Waterloo. <laughs> I'm amazed actually with the stupid tangents I go on. That I didn't somehow manage to find a way of putting in some history about Abba <laughs> into this episode. But anyway, you couldn't have if you'd wanted to, Tom. <laughs> you can... Voulez-vous. <laughs> am I the only person who likes to sing the lyrics to, to Waterloo but replace Waterloo with Portaloo?
0: I think that's probably fairly common.
2: Portaloo, where were you when I needed you? Anyway, where am I? So he was in charge of four and a half thousand troops, mostly Indian, and there were around 1200 civilians as well. Maybe 12,000 civilians, actually, I can't quite remember. Um, but a large number of civilians... I At think any rate,
0: actually... a multiple of 12. A multiple...
2: <laughs> possibly 24
0: or 36. Possibly 12,000, who can say? <laughs> a multiple
2: of six, two and three.
0: <laughs> and indeed one. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: It's not a prime number.
0: Damn it, Tom, this is a history podcast, not a maths podcast. You keen that kind
2: of knowledge to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel
0: like I'm channeling my
2: inner Leslie Nielsen now. <laughs> it's, it's... um. So let me finish, please, dear boy. Uh, 12,000, I think. I may—I think I've got my notes wrong. I think it was 12,000 civilians. Anyway, let me talk about the First Anglo-African War. Between 1839 and 1842, the British East India Company fought the Emirate of Afghanistan. Ah, oh, Do you want to briefly explain the British East India Company to listeners, Sam, in case they don't know?
0: The British East India Company was set up in the 60, 15 or 1600s, I can't quite remember, and it was a British government... Sponsored but private trading company that did most of Britain's dirty work basically in Asia and the Far East. So it had its own army, it launched its own invasion campaigns, <laughs> yeah. and was largely a trading company but was very heavily sponsored by the British government until really quite late on in its career when the government decided that having mercenaries running around the world conquering things in the name of Britain didn't look good internationally. So it reined it in and eventually yeah. the Properties of the East India Company became just part of the British Empire. And
2: who on earth would put businessmen in charge of mass weaponry? I mean, for fuck's sake, it's a ridiculous Indeed. concept. I, I
0: know. Not only that, Tom. Not only that, but also that. But who would let companies <laughs> essentially run war? <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> that would be a, a terrible, a terrible foreign policy this would never decision. Happen. Yeah, God, can you imagine?
2: This anyway, age. <laughs> this war, especially in the Middle East. Jesus, about to say, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> This war needs to be put in the context of the great game, which has kind of got a connection to the comments we were making, which is a term used to describe the British and the Russian empires wrestling to maintain their areas of influence in Asia, both suspicious of each other's ambitions. So Afghanistan sat between British India, which also included much of what is modern day Pakistan, as far as I know, and the Russian empire, which was larger at the time, extended as more as Afghanistan through the Stans. As is so often the case, it was one of those situations where an external force, in this case the British, were meddling in a succession dispute to ensure there was a favourable outcome. And in 1839... Always works well. Yes, absolutely. Worked well for Crassus, didn't it? Yep. Uh, Not too far from there. Works quite well in South America these days. (laughs) Worked well in Iran. Yes, yes. In 1839, the British forces captured Kabul and installed their choice of leader. And these British forces were confident in a victory. Of the thirty thousand camels taken, for example, two were solely for cigarettes. One regiment took all of their hunting hounds, and one senior officer had sixty camels just for his personal belongings. <laughs> so they were fairly confident they weren't going to encounter any problems. They were, they were there <laughs> yes. to stay. I love if they had a camel for cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, a whole camel solely for cigarettes. Presumably, they'd found um, a duty free on the way somewhere well, on the yes. border. Were they camel cigarettes? Oh, I see what you did. Very good, very good. There was one of the camels was called Benson. and The other one was called... (laughs) Anyway. Phil. (laughs) As. (laughs) The British were settled down in Kabul. They were having a great time. They were playing cricket. There were horse races. There were theatrical shows. And the British soldiers in particular were having great fun with the Afghan women, many of whom seemed to have been very happy with the attention they were getting and we're quite happy to entertain the soldiers, as is quite commonly the case, isn't it? Here's a contemporary ditty. Was there a strict tease, Tom? Because that doesn't end well. <laughs> yeah. And it's tasteless. Absolutely tasteless in certain contexts. So here's a little ditty from the time. A Kabul wife under burqa cover was never known without a lover. That is a contemporary ditty. As I say, this is reasonably common. I certainly know in Christchurch, New Zealand, there's a port just behind the city called Littleton. It was quite well known for American submarines and American military boats to dock in Littleton Harbour. And a lot of the ladies were called boat women because they were actually there just because they liked having a shag with an American soldier. I actually trained a lady who didn't know who her father was, but knew that her father was an American Navy man. So some of the women were just prostituting themselves because the soldiers were comparably very wealthy, had a lot of money to throw around. And Afghanistan, as you would expect, was very, very conservative at the time, and the Afghan men absolutely hated this behaviour. So, things soon became untenable for the British. In 1841, there was a popular revolt, and a senior British officer was murdered, and strategic positions in Kabul were rapidly taken by the rebelling Afghans. The British tried to negotiate with the Afghan leader, Akbar, but this party of envoys were captured. The main envoy was killed, mutilated, and then dragged through Kabul, so things were getting a bit unpleasant. Probably shouldn't have brought
0: the uh, Afghan women with them, should they? (laughs) No. Brought you a gift.
2: This is a lovely lady we've been bonking on the side. It was a bit of a gamble, because we couldn't actually see what she looked like when we first started chatting her up at the bar.
0: But it turns out that Steve here is actually a
2: great (laughs) laugh. And if you ignore the beard... Jolly, jolly good in It's ...really quite accommodating. (laughs)
0: Yes. incidentally we bought you this camel full of cigarettes unfortunately he started smoking them himself he's, he's picked up the habits there's, there's not that many left but look he's smoking <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's on his way he's struggling to get up the hill fucking oh, know, yeah. no it's only this envoy thing was going to be at the top of the bloody hill where was I Elphinstone was in command at this point and proved <laughs> to be absolutely incompetent. He was described by a contemporary general, William Knott, as, quote, the most incompetent soldier who ever became a general. So a second envoy was sent to Akbar as things started to get hostile and managed to secure an agreement to let the British withdraw from Kabul. And it wasn't a very good agreement, but they secured an agreement. So on the 4th of January 1842, the British forces and the civilians with them, many women, children and elderly, Began their 90 mile march through the snow covered Hindu Kush to Jalalabad. Doesn't sound very appealing, does it? It does not.
0: I've been in that part of the world in kind of December, November time. It's
2: not very good. It's yes, yes. very cold. Yep. There's a lot of snow and no. there aren't many roads. It, it doesn't sound very pleasant what comes next. And it is a shining example of total incompetence. So it's it's used as an example of how not to be a general, really bad leadership. So Elphinstone was being sufficiently assertive to prevent anyone else taking control but sufficiently uh, what would be the word? Flappy. <laughs> Flappy. To not actually do anything sensible. To not actually generate any form of resistance any sort of cohesion. So it just became an absolute cock-up. Right up there with some of the worst British military disasters. So the moment the British left, they were shot at from the walls and those left behind were killed. And these were the very sick and the infirm. Akbar had promised supplies for the British to help them complete the journey and these did not appear. So the British are thinking, this is getting pretty pretty rough. This is getting pretty unpleasant. Akbar reappears, and this is only a couple of days later, apologises to the British and promises to provide them with the supplies that he originally promised. The British then wait, so not far away from Kabul, only to discover that it was, this was just a ruse to allow the local tribes oh. to find positions to start attacking the British column.
0: What a mistake of make maker when your enemy comes and promises you food and then you hang around waiting for him and it's not food. Yep. It's that, death.
2: It's a mistake that you would probably only make once, wouldn't you, Sam? <laughs> that is probably, yes. Yeah, you'd probably think after that first incident, hmm, this Akbar chap, not very trustworthy, not Elphinstone. Um, So, (laughs) four days into the trip, many of the soldiers had lost fingers, toes from the frostbite. A few hundred native soldiers had returned to Kabul, seeking to be accepted, but were actually killed or just sold into slavery. The wives and children of the British officers, so the high-ranking non-male sort of fighters, had accepted a promise of protection from Akbar, And as soon as they got back, they found life pretty unpleasant as well. They weren't murdered, but the sort of higher-ranking wives and children of some of the Indian officers were immediately killed. For some reason, the Afghanistanis clearly saw that there was more value in the British hostages than the Indian hostages.
0: I can't think why they would think that. (laughs) When Britain usually treated its Indian subjects with such high regard and respect. (laughs) Yeah. But it usually shows just love and compassion and. (laughs) Exemplified the value of all humans regardless of class. Race or (laughs) country of origin. Yeah, class. (laughs) Um,
2: Anyway, yes, so we started this on the 4th of January. By the 11th of January, only 200 of the 4,500 troops remained with the British column. Jesus. Akbar once again offered to sit down and negotiate, and again Elphinstone agreed. They sat down with uh, for dinner. Akbar had it all beautifully laid out for, for Elphinstone and his next in command and were promptly made prisoners.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Learn your lesson,
2: Elphinstone. Learn your lesson.
0: That's just not cricket, though, Tom. That's not... Uh, you don't invite your enemy to dinner and then arrest him.
2: That's not how you do it. You can't possibly fathom how that would happen. it has got to be a nice chap.
0: You pass witticisms... You threaten him and say next time's I'll see you on the field of battle. Oh. You slap him with a glove and then you leave. <laughs> it's how we do war, Tom, with British
2: hearts and minds, Bloody Afghanistanis didn't even want a game of cricket beforehand. <laughs> Two days after Elphinstone was captured, on the 13th of January, one British officer, Assistant Surgeon William Bryden, arrived in Jalalabad with half of his head missing Jesus. on a completely shattered pony. And is asked by people on the walls of Jalalabad, where is the army? And he looks up and says, I am the army. This guy was the only survivor. (laughs) Jesus. One man who had had his head chopped off, part of his head chopped off with a sword. And the only reason he'd managed to survive that is because he had a gentleman's magazine he'd put under his helmet to keep himself warm. (laughs) It deflected the blow slightly. (laughs) And by Gentleman's Magazine, I'm not <laughs> talking about a bear of boobies. Okay. It was like, you know. <laughs> Just a, co- a copy of Razzle saved my life. <laughs> that sounds like a pop song. Last night, a max hit my life. <laughs> Last night, a max hit my life from a sword. Beautiful. Can't work out which of the BJs Thanks. that sounded like. <laughs> One of the Gibbs. Anyway, talking go. of staying alive assistant surgeon William Bryden was one of the few people to actually survive in the days and weeks after a few other stragglers um, managed to find their way to Jalalabad and there, there is a story of a very heroic last stand by one of the small units in this British column that had sort of managed to developed some sort of cohesion and someone had taken control and tried to tried to fight back but they were just peppered on each on on every side by afghan tribesmen in a very narrow pass and the shit hit the fan it just was absolute chaos
0: yeah this is one of the great problems with afghanistan is there's only really one way in and one way out if you don't have planes Right. Whether you're coming from the north, there's one way in from the north and one way in from the south, and that's pretty much it. So it's very easy to get stuck and very hard to get supplies in and out.
2: Well, I think this is what happened. Some of the Afghanistani tribesmen actually put across the pass at a narrow point just lots of dead trees and, and branches and things and just made a big fence line, a really awkward obstacle to overcome. And a lot of the British soldiers just couldn't get over it. Some of them were shot trying to get over it. A few of them did get over it. So I I, I imagine this assistant surgeon, William Bryden was one of the few that managed to get over with someone and and get through the melee on the other side. So it was just absolute chaos. So we went from having 4,500 troops and thousands of civilians to one man finding his way to Jalalabad and a few other people. Oh, no. Dreadful. People died of frostbite, people died of starvation, people committed suicide because of the conditions. It's just a horrible, horrible situation. And just to sort of round things off quite nicely, so this is Elphinstone's, he, he ended up being captured and actually died in captivity quite soon after. The British actually, a few years later, sent a large force in. They got back a number of the prisoners and the hostages and uh, raised a lot of Kabul. So the British did get their own back. This is the British way. (laughs) (laughs) Gobblish. But to go full circle, William Bryden actually, later on in his career, was made a Companion of the Bath. Ah, There you go. Off-head, Will. For for his bravery. Like I say, it was a one-in-one-out policy for the Companion (laughs) of the Bath. As one Companion demonstrates his incompetence, another one demonstrates great bravery and resilience. Fantastic. Jumps... Into the bath. Makes a big splash. (laughs) Spends the rest of his
0: days reading gentlemen's magazines in the bath.
2: (laughs) Surrounded by a few hundred other posh Englishmen. (laughs) Which episode have you got there, William? Half head, full mast.
0: (laughs) Oh, dude. Page four, beauty. Yes. (laughs) Look at the blackened teeth on that. (laughs) I hope this beauty trend never dies. (laughs)
2: Anyway, so there you have it. What was I? There was another thing I was going to say about that. That was another interesting fact. You know, the Flash novels. I've never read any of them. Uh... They're sort of a bit of a cult classic, aren't they, I think? The, the Flash... Flash Heart? Is it Captain Flash Heart? Wasn't he Blackadder? Or did, was there a series of novels based around that? Yeah, sorry, that was Rick Mayall in Blackadder, wasn't it? But there, there, there are yes. a series of famous books. I think they're called Flash. And the first one of those is set at this retreat. So there you have it, Sam. Very interesting. Hero to zero, William George Keith Elphinstone, one of the most incompetent military commanders in the history of the British Empire. Excellent. Well, just going to show two things, Tom. Firstly, don't
0: invade Afghanistan, kids. Don't. And secondly, just because you can fight the French successfully, it doesn't mean (laughs) that you can fight anyone else, including nomadic (laughs) tribesmen, successfully.
1: (laughs) Excellent.
2: Excellent, and having another <laughs> dig at the French. Good.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't
1: enough last week. Oh, it's just it's just too easy. It's too much fun.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. For any of our French listeners, all two of you. To start I, with,
2: good <laughs> um. Hey,
0: very good. Very very good. Uh, <laughs> well that's all. That was very interesting. Thank you. I've got another story in a bizarre triple twist. So that was genius.
2: That was the name of the gentleman's magazine. I forgot it was Triple Twist. (laughs) Uh, Triple Twist and Wandering Fist. Yes, that's. (laughs) Which you can find down a side street in Bangkok. Wonderful little bar. (laughs) Free entry after eight o'clock. Ping pongs everywhere. (laughs) Free entry after
0: eight o'clock, but you have to pay $10 to get into the bar. (laughs) Woof. Right, right, right Speaking of bars, Tom Speaking of bars I've got another story Hit me with it My second story today is Right at the other end of the spectrum From my first one Because this is Oh, in fact and, and yours, in fact Because rather than fighting to the death My second badass today Is a man who went full resputin And refused to die Wow, lover of the Russian Queen Not so much the Russian Queen But he did refuse to die Despite repeated murder attempts Uh, So it's not so much that he was a badass, but his liver and his stomach certainly were. Wow. This is the story of Michael Malloy, Tom, better known as Iron Mike.
2: Iron Mike. He was a stripper, wasn't he? That's Magic Mike. That's Magic Mike. From the sounds
0: of it, you don't want this guy stripping in front of you. The 60-year-old retired fireman and alcoholic. Nice. (laughs) Born in Ireland, but living in New York in the 1920s and 1930s. And in 1932, Mike found himself in a very, very bad way. He was homeless and completely dependent on alcohol to get through the day. Not entirely unusual, not entirely unusual then, not entirely unusual today, but very, very sad. Not
2: for an Irishman. <laughs> for, <laughs> I just don't.
0: for an Irishman, yes. So he was having a very bad time, and a group of five of his acquaintances, five of his friends, saw this. And in Depression-era America, where freaks
2: are fair game, say I was going to say, no, was gonna, was gonna crack that as a joke. Is this actually? Oh, sorry. He was actually sent to a freak show, was he, by his mates? No, oh, but okay. they did
0: see a way to make a bit of money out of a friend, who they thought was an otherwise useless bum. What they did is they used a corrupt insurance broker to take out a series of life insurance policies on a fictional guy called Nicholas Mellory. Nicholas Mellory was based on Mike. Same description, basically the same details of the guy. And this insurance policy would pay out $1,750 if he died, or $3,500, around $70,000 today, if he died of
1: accidental clauses. Of accidental clauses. (laughs) (laughs) If you've got a really shit lawyer...
0: Sorry, yes, accidental causes. The so-called double indemnity clause. That's what went <laughs> wrong. All they had to do was make sure that Mike, aka Nicholas, died of accidental causes and was found with some fake ID in his pocket. So with $3,500 on the line, they set out to make sure that accidents happened <laughs> with a series of increasingly brutal murder attempts.
2: <laughs> they sort of, did they go home alone? Did they just set traps all around his house?
0: Tom, you, would ha- you have no idea. You're not quite trapped, but very home alone. Some of their murder attempts, yes. <laughs> to begin with, it started out as innocently as any murder attempt can. They wanted to send him away happy. One of the gang, Tony Marino, owned a speakeasy bar. Bear in mind, this is Prohibition Era it's America. Off.
2: His name wasn't Tony Marino. 1930s it was Tony Marino. 30s America, and his name's Tony Marino. What is this? A yes. Martin Scorsese film?
1: Tony Marino. Hey, my name's Tony. <laughs> Tony Marino. What did Tony Marino do? Did he own a pizza bar? an ice cream parlor? Tony Marino owned a speakeasy bar. He owned a yes, speakeasy. he did. <laughs> Tony Marino. He owned a speakeasy where he sold beautiful cashmere jumpers. There's one thing Tony Marino likes, it's Marino. <laughs> He's so soft. He's so nice to cuddle. So warming. That's Tony Marino. <laughs> Cuddly Tony, they call him. Cuddles McGee. <laughs> I love going down with Sheep Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can share a drink with some sheep. Okay. Anywho. Uh, yeah, so Tony... <laughs> <laughs> just
2: imagine if was a sheep sitting at a bar. <laughs> sitting at a
0: what, Tom? Come on. <laughs> sitting, you know what to
2: sitting, do. Sitting at a bar. <laughs> That was
0: lacklustre. Do it again. This time with feeling. (laughs) Sorry. So, yeah, Tony Marino owned a speakeasy and gave Mike unlimited credit. Now, the idea was quite simply that the crippling alcoholic would just drink himself to death. I'm not sure that counts as an accidental death, but he would drink himself to death. He did not, Tom. He did not. Mike drank and drank and drank and came back for more. Day after day, he would drink himself completely under the table. So Marino decided to help him along a little bit, with a few cocktails of his own invention, and started mixing in antifreeze into the whiskey. It's Georgie's marvellous medicine, is it?
1: (laughs) It's Tony's marvellous medicine. Why
2: why did he suddenly become a northerner? Uh
1: Jody's Marvellous
0: Medicine Tony's <laughs> Marvellous I was trying to do I was trying to do American Italian <laughs> <laughs> Well it wasn't very really good Sam. No, can't do that So yeah, Tony started mixing in antifreeze into the drinks And that didn't work So he started mixing in more and more and more Until he was just serving Mike antifreeze Right That didn't work Day oh,
2: after on day on after a day a cold and frosty morning he was <laughs> With Mike walking outside <laughs> Ooh, very warm yeah. <laughs> Taking his jacket off Taking his merino Ooh, jumper off Sweating like a PRG pissing, pissing on people's cars And defrosting just Streams, a, streams of red hot
0: piss
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hey Mike Hey Mike Would you mind pissing on my bonnet again
0: Piss on the hood He just belches on the windscreen <laughs> Just melts clear
1: Thanks Mike <laughs>
0: Sunshine, lollipops, and he's just walking down the road, and spring is following him everywhere. <laughs> Bears come out of hibernation as Little he passes, deer
2: skipping along. <laughs> Ludes, kind of
0: blinking into the sunlight.
2: <laughs> the sun smiles down upon him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the sun's bobbing in the background, <laughs> and there we've just created the shittest Disney princess.
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, well, anyway, the antifreeze didn't work. So uh, Marino started replacing it with more and more and more awful ingredients, <laughs> turpentine and even rat poison. But Malloy just kept on ordering more and more and more drinks. So by this point, he was just drinking straight rat poison
1: night after night.
0: <laughs> one of the conspirators, there are oh, five conspirators one in this game. Paulie.
1: <laughs> hey, Paulie.
0: Oh, where's his name? I've not got guy's name in front of me. They did have a, they had a lot of very American names. I'll pull them out towards the end. One of the conspirators was a chemist and understood that there was an ingredient in oysters which, when mixed with alcohol, could be very, very poisonous. So they marinated some raw oysters in pure methanol.
2: I almost vomited there. Yeah, quite.
0: And they believed, probably quite rightly, that this would kill him. Uh, It didn't. He ate the entire jar of oysters and then came back from all that poison. (laughs) (laughs) They then decided that they weren't quite done with the fish yet. So they then decided to feed him a delicious sandwich of, get this Tom, they rooted around in the cupboard, and they found a spoiled tin of sardines, an ancient tin of sardines that was several years old. We've all been there, Sam. (laughs) Desperate (laughs) times, or indeed Scandinavian delicacies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Weekend trip to Stockholm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: have you ever tried it? I can't What's it called. I can't remember what the food's
2: called. Sealed. I love sealed. Pickled herring, bloody beautiful, with scrambled eggs. Delicious. Pickled herring's all right. It's when they've buried it in the ground for six months. Oh, yes, yes. That's Inuit communities, isn't it? Do that. They bury a bird. Yeah, it's,
0: well, they bury uh, seal and kipper, I think, in certain parts of Scandinavia. It's actually considered a criminal offence to open it in a public place. It smells so, so bad. And it's
2: just like a really, really repulsive blue cheese smell, taste, isn't it? Yes, I think so. How the so, fuck yeah. that becomes a delicacy? Basically some something someone, <laughs> once upon a time, had to eat to survive. Well, that's how things become a delicacy.
0: Bear in mind that regional delicacies are foods which have never left the region they were invented in. That's a good point. And there's probably a reason for that.
2: <laughs> that is a very good point. Never,
0: ever eat the local delicacies. Yes. <laughs> At any rate, they found a tin of rotten sardines and they made him a sandwich. Now, rotten sardines... Fairly unpleasant. What else do they mix it with, Tom? Well, they put in rat poison. <laughs> they ground up some glass bottles. Oh, 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 oh. They filled it with carpet nails. <laughs> and then they even shredded the tin that the sardines had come in and put that in the sandwich as
1: well.
2: well Their Kenwood would have been fucked after that, wouldn't he? <laughs> They're
1: bullet. No, no, no. You blunted the blades. <laughs> How am I going to have my protein shake in the morning, hey? Yeah. I'm trying to lose weight. What am I supposed to do
0: with all this spirulina? <laughs> <laughs> ah, fuck. I just bulk bought chia seeds. A fuck shake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, but anyway, they made this sandwich and Malloy, obviously very, very, very drunk, not only ate it, Tom, he not only ate the nail and glass sandwich, but he asked for another without blinking.
2: <laughs> At what point did they decide to give him some Mentos and Coca-Cola?
0: <laughs> that would have been the sensible way out, wouldn't it? I, I Honestly, I don't know why they were so convinced with a whole rotten fish route. Oh. <sighs> Christ. You know, that's clearly not going to get a guy who can quite happily drink meths all day long.
2: And eat carpet
0: nails. And eat your carpet nails, but yes, murder conspirators tend not to be the brightest uh, tax in the carpet, frankly. (sighs) Realising that this just wasn't going to work, and he was going to both drink the bar dry and drink the local DIY shop out of all of its polish.
2: (laughs) And everyone's going to be tripping over the corners of the carpet. Yep. (laughs)
0: Yes, so realising that he was causing both a health and safety catastrophe and uh, drinking them out of house and home. Rats running yeah.
1: everywhere. <laughs> this place is great. This place used to have rat poison all over it before, but last couple of weeks, it's brilliant. Now,
0: where's that tin of sardines I left here six years ago? <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that this wasn't working, the gang changed tact. And so one extremely cold winter night, bearing in mind this was December, January in New York, after Mike had passed out drunk... They carried him to Crotona Park, which is near the Bronx Zoo, and stripped him before pouring a five-gallon bucket of cold water over him, hoping hypothermia would get him, and he died during the night, and the police would find him in the morning, they just think that there was a homeless guy who died.
2: We've already cracked the antifreeze joke, haven't we? That we have already cracked work
0: <laughs> Yep, and I have written in my notes, presumably because of all the antifreeze in the system, <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> No, Same way, what, <laughs> so, 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 this is why we have to do this podcast together, Tom. You know, what actually happened is the cold water woke him up <laughs> and he stumbled He stumbled off. They thought they killed him, but the next day he
2: turned up at opening time for his free drinks. <laughs> Looking like the snowman from Raymond Briggs. <laughs>
0: Looking like the snowman, <laughs> entirely unsuspicious about the, <laughs> the crippling the hangovers water. he was starting to
1: get. <laughs> uh, is there a fart tonight? I've been eating carpet tags and swallowing rat poison.
0: (laughs) Anyway, I get the feeling at this point, the insurance company in this case would probably not have paid out on his death being accidental, uh, given that he was naked (laughs) in a park with an empty bucket next to him and a stomach full of nails and floor polish. Uh, But (laughs) but, hey. (laughs) So next up, they decided that water wasn't going to work, poison wasn't going to work. So another of the conspirators, Hershey Green, who ran a taxi company... Hoishi Green, who ran a taxi company, ran him over. Now, Hershey had tried to bribe two of his taxi drivers to do the job for him, paying two or $400 a time, but they'd refused because, you know, murder is murder. <laughs> so Hershey did it himself, taking a taxi and running over Mike as he left the bar one night at 45 miles an hour. You want a job done, do it yourself, Sam. <laughs> you well, Tom, done. if you want a job done, do it better because Mike was hospitalised and the group presumed he was dead and waited around to see his obituary in the papers so that he could claim the life insurance money. However, I and Mike did suffer several broken bones, but he didn't die. And three weeks later, he discharged himself from hospital and celebrating his good luck, hobbled on crutches straight back to the bar for a celebratory drink. <laughs> that was a sandwich. Can't any
1: more of those oysters? Oh, beautiful.
0: (laughs) The pickle is so, so tender. (laughs) So at this point, the gang momentarily gave up and just tried running over another unemployed Irishman, (laughs) a guy called Joseph Patrick Murray. It's a bit of practice. (laughs) We've got to get better at this, guys. (laughs) Hit him straight on. Hit him straight on. Uh, so they, they knocked this guy down, stuffed a fake ID into his pocket and ran off. But he, too, survived. And actually, at this point, the police started to get interested because uh, Hershey Green's taxi number was written down by a by a passerby who witnessed the hit and run. But anyway, Joseph Patrick survived as well. So they're a really bad gang of murderers as well. <laughs> at this point, they decided that actually they would just keep it simple. So they hired a gunman to machine gun Mike down. That didn't work. Deflected off all the tacks in his stomach. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Just bounced off the
2: glass.
0: (laughs) He just burped on it and the bullet melted. Kind of Matrix style.
2: (laughs) Slow-mo of him waving uh, back.
0: uh, (laughs) The thermal created by the heat, created by the burp, just causes the bullet to (laughs) soar up into the sky. (laughs) But yes, they tried having him gunned down and they paid someone to just... Twat him over the head with a big stick. Neither of those worked. Oh, oh, oh. So he kept on coming back to the bar night after night after <laughs> <Yeah>. night. <laughs> someone
2: dressed someone dressed as a Victorian puppet crept up behind him. <laughs> <laughs> I was
0: feeding him sausages full of ecstasy, I don't know.
2: <laughs> that would be that'd be a good horror movie, wouldn't it? A, a life size life size punch. From Punch and Judy, going around it, and being on the back of the head, poking his head out from round corners again. That's the way to do it. There's
0: something very Ghostbusters about that, isn't there? <laughs>
2: something, something very It about it. I was actually
0: thinking it's like old school 1960s Batman. Oh yeah, yeah, With yeah. what's his name, Adam West. <laughs> yes, yes. With his puppet spray. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, shooting him didn't work, hitting him didn't work. He just kept on coming back to the bar night after night after night, drinking them out of house and home. So finally, on February 23rd, 1933, after nine failed murder attempts... the gang took Mike to a rented room after he passed out drunk one night unscrewed the fitting from a gas lantern forced the gas pipe down his neck and finally finally suffocated him and murdered him Uh, the next morning they bribed a doctor to write a fake death certificate for pneumonia with a note that said uh, Malloy had visited him twice recently with breathing problems just to make it seem that bit more convincing and finally with their victim in hand and definitely not accidentally dead they cashed in the life insurance policies in all Tom They spent over $1,800 trying to kill (laughs) Malloy with booze, hired accomplices, and bribes. So now feeling a little out of pocket, another of the gang, an undertaker called Frank Pasha, not Joe Pesci, Frank Pasha, (laughs) decided to cheap out on the funeral. Uh, Despite supposedly throwing a lavish $400 send-off for his friend, he actually buried him unembalmed in a $10 coffin in a shallow grave. Now, here's the thing. A guy surviving several murder attempts and being given free booze for life for no reason whatsoever tends to raise suspicion and (laughs) rumour, especially in Prohibition-era New York. And Mike Malloy's story spread like wildfire. The police and their informants were therefore more than a little suspicious already (laughs) about what was going on and the repeated runnings over by the same taxi
2: and (laughs) And the amount of metal in his toilet... (laughs) that was being flushed through the <laughs> yeah. cisterns. Just every time, every time he has a poo, you could just hear the
0: tinkling of steel. <laughs> like emptying a jar of marbles onto the floor. <laughs> His neighbours below were just like, oh, Mike's been drinking again. <laughs> it's a whole new uh, whole means of pebble dashing, isn't it? <laughs> just be careful not to walk past any magnets. So yes, the police were very suspicious when he actually died and very quickly exhumed the body, which wasn't very difficult because it was in a shallow
2: grave. You find it with a metal detector. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And there was no frost. <laughs> that part of the ground never frosted over.
0: <laughs> yeah, easy to spot his grave because of the yeah. melting lava lake
2: <laughs> and all the rats avoiding it.
0: <laughs> yeah, where's the body? Go towards the sun. You see that mushroom cloud over there? <laughs>
1: it's
0: like he's just walked out of Fukushima. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Since the body hadn't been embalmed and was kept nicely warmed by the antifreeze, they were able to perform a full post-mortem and very quickly work out exactly what had actually happened. And the gang were arrested. Now, Hershey Green, the taxi driver, was jailed for 10 years, having turned witness for the state and immediately shot the rest of the gang very early on. And the rest of them, despite immediately turning against each other, claiming insanity and various other defences as well, All the other four conspirators were sentenced to death by the electric chair and executed in the following years. So they were a very, very bad gang of murderers. And Iron Mike was a badass alcoholic, as alcoholics go. Wow. What a constitution. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to know the names, Tom? uh, They're not particularly interesting, but I've got the names now in front of me of the conspirators. So we
1: have Tony Marino. Only if they're funny. Tony Rubino. Tony Marino. Tony Marino. Sorry, Tony Marino. Joseph Red Murphy. Joseph Red Murphy Francis Pasha Francis Pasha Hershey Green Hershey Green That's a good name Hershey Green And Daniel Kreisberg Daniel Kreisberg Yeah <laughs> So we have got the
0: Italians The Irish The more Italians The Jewish it Eastern Europeans And United the Germans Nations. <laughs> Little rainbow yes. murder gang Yeah So yeah So the following years Four of the five were executed With the electric chair And Hershey Green The taxi murderer Got off ten years For a uh, causing an accident with an automobile was the charge he was eventually... For
1: chirping. For <laughs> chirping. For chirping. For being Sang a, like a boy. Singing like
0: a boy, Sang bird. like a boy. <laughs> Which he did because he thought it was spring every time <laughs> Malloy walked past.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid story.
0: Of a guy with a badass liver. <laughs> And some very bad friends. And an excellent digestive system. Wow. <laughs> a superb digestive system, yeah. It sounds a bit like Mr. Monge 2, that French guy who used to eat alarm clocks in aeroplanes. Oh, I remember that.
2: Yeah, and bicycles
0: yeah. Of all sorts. His name was Mr. Monge 2, was it? His, his nickname was Mr. Monge 2, Mr. Eat-It-All.
2: Excellent.
0: Monge 2, Rodman, yeah. Monge 2. Monge 2. <laughs> uh, wow. So there we go, Tom. A stupid story to end us on, which I think has left us with a slightly longer podcast than usual, but... I think probably a... Well, I think probably a pretty good one. I was here. It was a damn fine episode.
2: <laughs> you, I was there, man. I was there. <laughs> right, uh, the topic for next week. What should yes. we do? What did I... Did I come up with anything good?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I like you very much, but not necessarily enough to read your mind yet. We were talking <laughs> about going back to journeys, weren't we?
2: Journeys. <clears throat> yes. Shipwrecks. Hmm. Discovery. Discovery. That's vague. Yes. in many directions with that. Let's do it. Let's do Discovery. What sort of period of history have we not done for a while? I haven't done Classical for quite a
0: while. No. I've done a bit of Medieval recently, but I haven't done much Classical.
2: I haven't done much Medieval. Hmm. Well, Medieval, we can go Discovery. Yeah, fuck it, Discovery. Yeah. Done. Discovery it is. And if I come out with a Conquistador, it's not my fault. So be it. I'm just drawn that way. (laughs) History made me do it.
0: Yes. Lovely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you have, please, please, please do share us amongst your friends. You'll find sharing links in most podcast apps. Put a link on social media as well. Let your friends know about us. We love having new listeners and you'll love being the talk of the town with the cool new history podcast you've discovered. You'll have potential sexual partners falling at your feet. Yes. Begging you to stop talking about, <laughs> about That Was Genius, the little history podcast with a big heart. And on that note, we'll see you next week for a voyage of discovery <laughs> into discovery. Bye. Bye, Tom. Bye, audience. Mostly wrapped up. Very good.